talking about the patriarchs, about stories of old. And today I'm going to talk about Isaac. And um, I'm going to challenge you to think about some things a little bit differently today than what you may normally think about Isaac. I need to start off way back towards the beginning. You see, Noah built the ark. It took him a little over 100 years, and he waited on the rain. Abraham waited for a son. We'll be talking about that son in just a minute. The Israelites waited and wandered in the desert for 40 years. Elijah waited on God's provisions. The chosen people of God waited 400 years in silence before hearing from God. And then he spoke through the birth of his son. Jesus waited roughly 30 years before starting his ministry. And after his death, he waited for three days before he rose again. The apostles waited in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit of God to come upon them. How many times did the Apostle Paul himself wait in prison or in chains for the Lord to work in his life? Isaac, who we're going to talk about today, waited for probably what seemed like hours when his father bound, his, bound him and, and laid him on the altar. He also waited while his father sent for him to have a wife. And then he waited again to see the promise that God made to his father begin to be fulfilled in him. As we look at the stories of old today from the patriarchs, I want you to think about maybe what you need to lay down in order to hear the will of God and live your faith to follow his vision. If you will, go ahead now, get your pen out, because at the end, you're going to have to write down in the insert in the bulletin, it says, I, you put your name, and you're going to list a few things that you're going to let go and need to work on so that you can hear, see, and follow God's will and vision for your life. Will you pray with me? Father God, today we come before you and, and the message is, is strong uh, from your word and from the examples of the patriarchs. And, and Lord, just as Abraham laid down Isaac, I know there are things that we hold on to that we need to let go, that we need to lay down so that you can work in our lives, so that you can show us your vision for us as individuals and as a church. So I pray that as we, as we look at your word, as we look at your servant, as we look at ourselves, you will reveal to each one of us what those things are. Maybe they're jealousy, maybe it's anger, maybe it's uh, a rage, maybe it's bitterness, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's financial gain. Whatever it is that each one of us has to struggle and carry around that we would rather hold on to, bring it to the forefront of our minds today, Lord. So that it's very clear what may be keeping us from allowing you to lead us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You see, the, the unique thing about Isaac is that he was the only biblical patriarch whose name was not changed. I thought that was kind of interesting. He's also the only one who didn't leave Canaan. And compared to those of Abraham and Jacob, his story relates fewer incidents of his life. So some people would say there's not a lot known about Isaac. But... I think sometimes it's the small details that we, we pick up the most. You see, he died when he was 180 years old, which makes him the longest-lived patriarch. It was prophesied to, patriarch, to the patriarch Abraham that he would have a son and that his name should be called Isaac. And when Abraham became 100 years old, this son was born to him by his first wife, Sarah. Though this was Abraham's, Abraham's second son, it was Sarah's first and only child. And we see this story of Isaac in Genesis chapter 21. 
And just for your reading and studying later on this week, I'm going to be hitting in Genesis 21, 22, and 23. And so you can go ahead and I want to encourage you to read those and, and look into them this week and see what God's doing here. On the eighth day from his birth, Isaac was circumcised, as was necessary for all males of Abraham's household, in order to be in compliance with Yahweh's covenant. After Isaac had been weaned, Sarah saw Ishmael, that was Isaac's older half-brother, um, and mocking him, and urged her husband to cast out Hagar the bondservant and her son, so that Isaac would be Abraham's sole heir. Abraham was hesitant, but at God's order, he listened to his wife's request. At some point in Isaac's youth, his father also brought him to Mount Moriah, that happens in Genesis chapter 22. And at God's command, Abraham was to build a sacrificial altar and sacrifice his son Isaac on it. After he had bound his son to the altar and drawn his knife to kill him, at the very last moment, an angel of God prevented Abraham from proceeding. And he was directed to sacrifice a nearby ram instead of his son. You see, this event served as a test of Abraham's faith in God, not as an actual human sacrifice. Let me stop here for a second because I want to point out a couple of things. First off, this is faith at its highest point. This is Abraham's faith at its highest point. Now, now that we can see the back of the story, we can stand over here, we can see the story in full, clear perspective from God's word. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Yes, he did. Was it a legitimate request? Yes, it was. Did Abraham know in advance how the story would end? No, he didn't. Specifically, though, Did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. Well, then what is it that Abraham knew? Here's the cool part of the story. Abraham passed on to Isaac what he knew. And what Abraham knew was that God had asked him to do something. And he also knew that God had promised to give him a son through whom he would bless the world. What he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile his promise to bless the world through Isaac and his command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice at the same time. He didn't know that. But it's at this point that we see Abraham's faith at its highest and its best. Even though the command made no sense from a human perspective, Abraham intended to obey it. And Isaac obeyed Abraham. You see, he meant to obey God's command, even though it meant killing God's promise. Now, you may read that story and hear that story and think, how could somebody do that? Well, Because he believed something. He believed that God could raise the dead. See, for Abraham, it was more of a, God asked me to do this, and I'm going to. And and he knew God made a promise to him, and he knew God would still fulfill that promise. See, my friend Kylie, um, she understood this principle of faith. She was in a Bible study with some friends, and and she has a few kids at the time, and they they had a discussion about how they were longing for heaven, and they were just kind of having one of those discussions about heaven. And someone said, well, I'm ready for heaven, but who would take care of my kids? And Kylie's response to the group was this. They were God's kids to begin with before they were ever our kids. You may think, oh, that's cute. One week after she said that, Kylie died giving birth to her fourth child. Now, Kylie wasn't a prophetess or anything like that. She was a faithful woman. And she knew and she she believed that when she said it. She wasn't just casually saying something and not meaning it. And her kids are doing fine. Her husband's well-adjusted. He's taking care of them. They're moving forward. But it's that, that statement right there that they were his kids to begin with. And I think that's what Abraham knew when God asked him to do this. 
They were God's kids to begin with. Isaac was God's to begin with. You see, everything that we have, everything that we are, including our children, belong to God. They have, whether you want them to or not. It amazes me that we say things that, like, we believe. We believe what the Bible says. We believe that God created the universe and all that is in it in six days, and yet we can't seem to believe that he will sustain us in times of trouble, that he will sustain us in times of of sequestration. That's the new trendy thing right now. And I don't say that lightly because I know that impacts a lot of you. But I want you to know God will sustain you. We have to believe that he will sustain our kids if they choose to follow into ministry or mission work or Bible college. You know, Abraham not only listened to God, but he taught Isaac that God will always provide what is needed when it's needed. He always taught Isaac to take time for God. That's a valuable lesson in a three-day hike up to the mountain where you're going to help your dad build an altar, and then your dad's going to lay you down on it. It's a powerful lesson. Parents, grandparents, are you giving your time for Jesus? If you're not setting that example, don't expect your kids to. Are you giving your money to God, sacrificially or or tithing? If you're not, don't expect your kids to grow up doing it. Are you showing sacrifice to God? Are you stepping out and walking in faith in front of your kids? If not, don't expect them to be world changers for God. Don't expect them to care about a community if we're not setting that example and providing a foundation of faith. You can't expect our kids to have anything solid to grow on if we're not going to be the ones that start it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. If you were physically here at Huntsville Christian Church last week, you stood up and you said that you would follow God. Most of you said you would follow him anywhere. And I believe that you meant it when you said it last week. But I want you to look back on your week and be honest with yourself. Did you follow God or did you take him places that he wouldn't normally go? Just in one week. Now, I'm not wanting you to confess anything, but just let that filter through. I've been in ministry for almost 18 years now. And you know what breaks my heart more than anything is when I see and hear good Christian parents say to their kids, I don't want you going on that mission trip. It's a waste of time. You're not going to fix the problems of the people in Mexico. We don't have money for that. There's people here in America that need to know about Jesus. I had a parent say that to a kid in Florida. There's people in America that need to know about Jesus. The kid said, in that case, can I go on the inner city trip to help with BBS? The parent said, no. Why? It's not safe. It's inner city. Well, That's also when we're going on our family vacation. That was the other parent's other response to that. You mean we go to see Aunt Betty and her family? Yeah, that one. I'd rather go on the mission trip. (laughs) (laughs) Then the parents come to the youth minister. Say, you're splitting my family apart with this mission trip nonsense. Would you stop? I'm like, no, I won't. I'm sorry. Do you have any idea how many parents have said to their kids as they graduate from high school, I don't want you going to Bible college. There's no money in ministry. Or you can't live like a missionary your whole life. Good Christian people who believe what the Great Commission says turn around and say to our kids, hey, don't follow that. There's no money in it. 
There's, there's no glory in that. There's glory in, you know, being a heart surgeon or something. If we don't have the faith to follow God. And by the way, this sermon is not about not letting your kids go to Bible college or be ministers. Of course, I think every kid should be a minister, uh, but that's another sermon. But it is about having the faith to follow God. It's about if we don't encourage our children to have their own faith in God, like Abraham did with Isaac, the reality is the only place we're following God is to church on Sunday morning. We have to realize that when we live out our faith, even when it starts to cost something, our time, our finances, our comfort, our children, we will see, like Isaac, that our sacrifices in life are needed so we can experience what is truly from God. You see, when Isaac was 40, Abraham sent Eliezer, his steward, into Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac from his nephew Bethuel's family. Eliezer chose Rebekah. After many more years of marriage to Isaac, Rebekah had still not given birth to a child, and she was believed to be barren. Isaac prayed for her, and she conceived and had a baby. Had two, actually. Rebekah gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when his two sons were born. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. I'll get into that a little bit later. At the age of 75, Isaac moved after his father died. And when the land he was in experienced famine, he moved to the Philistine land of Gerar, where his father once lived. This land was still under the control of King Abimelech, as it was in the days of Abraham. Also like his father, Isaac deceived Abimelech about his wife and also got into the well business. You'd think he might have picked up on a few things. And as much as he learned in faith, he still made some similar mistakes. Uh, But nonetheless, he'd gone back to all of the wells that his father dug, and he saw they were stopped up with the earth. The Philistines filled in all the wells after Abraham died, so Isaac dug them all back out and dug more wells all the way to Beersheba, where he made a pact with Abimelech, just like in the days of his father. You see, he made some mistakes like his father. He told him his wife was his sister. We, We talked about that story. But he also had faith. And he followed God. He did what, was, what he thought was best for his family. One of the faith areas that I think we really need to strengthen in our families is guarding our hearts. I think it's something we take lightly in our world today. You see, Isaac didn't guard Rebecca's heart when he asked her to pose as his sister. You, you would think he'd learned a better lesson from his family history, but sometimes history repeats itself in moments of weakness. We must follow God. We must wait on him for revelation and guidance sometimes. And we must guard our hearts and we must teach our family to do these things. Husbands, guard your wife's heart. Wives, protect your husband's heart. We know how to do these things. We just get lazy sometimes and and we think it's not as important as it once was. That you're not guarding your wife's heart when you say to the king of Abimelech, no, no, this is my sister. No. Isaac didn't guard her heart. We have to follow God. We have to wait on him. Parents, you need to be involved in your kids' lives in order to guard their heart. If you don't know who your kids are hanging out with, you can't guard their heart. You can't give them wisdom. You can't teach them to guard their hearts. You need to know what they're watching on TV. You need to know what pictures and text messages are on their phones. You need to get to know the people your kids are hanging out with, who they're dating. Parents, you better know what's happening on your kids' computers. We can no longer deny the truth that Satan is attacking our youth from every angle. We cannot hide from the fact that we are responsible for all the things I just mentioned. 
And if you don't understand computers or smartphones, ignorance is not bliss, parents. It's dangerous. Go to the Apple store, make an appointment to learn about your kid's iPhone. They'll teach you. Your kids may not appreciate it now, but they'll appreciate it later when you teach them to guard their heart. It's the faith. It's stepping out in faith. The Bible says that Isaac grew old and became blind. He called his son Esau and directed him to make some venison for him. By the way, the stew that we're making is venison stew. So go ahead and just breathe that in. You'll get kind of, kind of a visual of what I'm telling you right now. He directed Esau to make some venison for him in order to receive Isaac's blessing. And while Esau was out hunting, you may have heard this story. Jacob, after listening to his mother's advice, deceives his blind father by misrepresenting himself as Esau and obtains his father's blessing so that Jacob becomes Isaac's primary heir and Esau was left at an inferior position. According to Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 34, Esau had subsequently sold his birthright to Jacob for bread and stew of lentils. Therefore, Isaac sent Jacob into Mesopotamia and took a wife of his own family. After 20 years of working for his uncle Laban, and we kind of know that story, Jacob returned home. He reconciled with his twin brother Esau. Then he and Esau buried their father Isaac in Hebron at the age of 180. Do you see what happens here, adults, when we stop leading and, and setting examples of faith? Abraham went blind, essentially. He stopped leading his family, and it just fell apart. Let me share with you this illustration of a life lived not in perfection, but in faith and service to the Lord. This is my wife, Mitzi for any of our visitors or guests. Growing up a preacher's kid, I was blessed. <clears throat> you see, from the time I was born until I was in college, my dad served at three churches. We weren't countlessly moved around like some preacher's kids are. Each time we moved, it was because his choosing, his obedience to where he felt God was leading, never because he was asked. The first time we moved, I was five. It was an adventure moving here to Decatur. But eight years later, moving to Jacksonville, Florida, left me one unhappy preacher's kid. But that's another story. It would be later that I would realize that God had put our family in Jacksonville for a purpose greater than leaving behind my friends and family in Alabama. But it would be years later that another move would touch my heart so deeply. At a time in my parents' life when most ministers are settling into that church for retirement, God would put another calling on my father, a calling like Abraham to go to a foreign land, leave everything behind, and follow him. I remember sitting talking with my mom. She said she had this strange feeling that God was calling them to Haiti. It was that very same week that, God, that my dad would call her from Haiti and say that he felt that God was calling them to go, not even knowing that miles away God had already put that calling on my mom's heart as well. But that calling wouldn't have come, in my opinion, if my parents hadn't followed in obedience countless times before. When I was in middle school, my parents would take a month-long trip to the Philippines. And then when we moved to Jacksonville, my dad would take a trip every week to Haiti for two years. It would be over ten years later before that calling to leave everything behind would come. And so my parents would leave. And because of that, a little place in Haiti, once known for its voodoo, now has a church, and the people there have hope in a land where there's so little to hope for. 
Countless people from the states and Canada have come through that campus in Beauchon, and their lives would be touched as well. All three of my parents' children have been to Beauchon, along with their son-in-laws and their three oldest grandchildren. In fact, my sister's family is headed back to Haiti at the end of the month, and my brother and his wife are headed on a mission trip to Scotland tomorrow. John's planning a trip to Africa, and Dylan's ready to go with him, or to Haiti. None of that would have happened, though, if our parents hadn't instilled in us that when God calls, you follow. Our family's lives have been impacted by my parents' obedience and their willingness to follow God to Haiti. If you would ask each one of us if our faith is stronger, it would be an undeniable yes. One of my most precious memories is serving alongside my mom in a country starved for his mercy and grace. This weekend, I listened to Dylan share with someone his experience in Haiti. He talked about a day that I don't even remember, how he took some chalk, went and got an interpreter himself, and on a rainy day, broke some chalk and shared it with the children in Haiti. That's a memory of serving Jesus that Dylan will never forget. But the most important lesson isn't about traveling to faraway places on mission trips or the requirement that all of us children had to attend one year of Bible college. I've learned that no matter where God leads us, he will provide. And that when you choose to step out of your comfort zone and follow God, he blesses you. In times of uncertainty in our ministry, I've often followed the example that my parents have set in making decisions. You see, when John was approached about considering to step up and become the preacher, I had always said I'd never be a preacher's wife, <clears throat> the preacher, <clears throat> that wasn't something that we had ever planned. Youth ministry wasn't a, wasn't a stepping stone into ministry like some people think. So one day while I was thinking this through, the thought came into my mind. We could, of course, stay in the youth ministry position, and in my opinion, we would have been obedient to what God wanted. But when we stay in that comfortable place, in my opinion, we miss out on some of God's biggest blessings. And so we had a choice. We could stay where we feel safe, or we could step out. And I think when we choose to step out, God blesses us, but he uses us to bless others. So I think the question that we all have to ask is, am I okay with staying safe, or do I want myself and my family to live boldly for him? And so my prayer now is that one day John and I can pass down our legacy of faith to Dylan and our grandchildren that my parents have been able to pass on to us. She had her own pages, and now I got lost. <laughs> there we are. Some of you here today are here because of the legacy of faith that was passed on to you. Uh, some of you are here, like me, who stumbled upon faith as you kind of came through life. <clears throat> but... The question that we all have to ask is what type of legacy do we want to leave for our children? Sure, we can come to church and we can teach our children to be, stay, to be safe and comfortable and, and uh, live for Christ in this safe way. Or we can be like Abraham. We can say, here I am. Here's my family. Here are my children. 
We will be obedient to you in small things so that you will entrust us with grand things. And that's, that's going to be an awesome journey. I want Dylan to live dangerous, not just for the sake of needing to wear a crash helmet, but for the sake of living dangerously for Jesus. I don't want him to be afraid to go somewhere and serve. I want God to entrust him with grand things. I pray that you haven't become comfortable in your faith. I want you to think about this. For over 2,000 years, Christians have seen this story in the life of Isaac, a picture of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 22, we see what a man would do for the love of God when Abraham laid Isaac up on that altar. But at Calvary, we see what God would do for the love of man. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God actually sacrificed his only son. More than that, Jesus endured physical death and spiritual death in order to obtain redemption for sinners, for us. And when God's hand was raised at Calvary, there was no one there to cry, Stop! Do not harm that child. There was no ram in the thicket to offer in his place. So God's hand fell in judgment on his own son, and Jesus died for you and me. Abraham offered his son, sure enough. And the father offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried the cross. Isaac was laid on the altar. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Abraham was willing to put his son to death. And the father willed that his son should die. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac's sacrifice, and Christ was offered in the place of us. Abraham received his son back figuratively. Jesus literally rose from the dead. So what are we supposed to take away from this story about a boy named Isaac? This story of old, if you will, this this patriarch. When I read through Genesis 22, when I read through that, I was struck by something that God said to Abraham after this great trial was over. The ram was sacrificed. Isaac was spared. The promise reaffirmed. And it comes as part of the happy ending to this very great trial. And God commends Abraham by saying, You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. That's verses 12 and 16. You did not withhold from me. You see, God says, I asked for your most precious possession and you gave it to me. Abraham was willing to let go of his son. Through all of this, our Heavenly Father leads us along the path of complete trust in Him. Slowly but surely, we begin to discover that the things we thought we couldn't live without don't matter as much as we thought they did. Even the dearest and sweetest things of life take second place to the pleasure of knowing God. And in the end, we discover that He has emptied our hands of everything in order to fill them with Himself. We're learning to keep an open hand holding lightly what we value greatly because it all belongs to God anyway. That's what Abraham knew. That's what he passed down to Isaac. Some of you who hear these words are in the midst of a great struggle in your life right now. You feel pressured about something and you don't want to give it up. But you have to. You must and you will. I can't spare you the pain of yielding your dearest treasures to God, but I promise you the joy will far outweigh the pain that you feel right now. 
I'm going to wrap up with this one line from the hymn by Francis Havergal. Not a mite would I withhold. Not a mite would I withhold. A mite is a tiny, tiny thing. A little bit of money, like having a penny in your hand. It's not how much you have that matters to God. It's what you do with what you have. Will you hold on to what you own? Or will you say, Lord, it all belongs to you anyway? You see, it was Christ himself who asked, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's Mark eight thirty six, And maybe that's our real problem. We've gained so much that we don't dare let go, lest we lose the whole world. And yet somewhere in the process, we lose our own soul. So here's the deal. You can keep the world for a moment, and you can hold tightly to all those things, but you'll have to give it up in the end. Or you can keep your soul by beginning to let go of these things that are, one, were never yours to begin with, and maybe you're holding on to too tightly anyways. What is your Isaac? What is it that's in your life that you need to be willing to lay down for Jesus' sake? As we come to our time of response, I want you to simply sit and think about what you need to do in order to prepare for God to provide, work, direct, show, forgive, heal, or ultimately move in your life. Write it down. Put your name on it. Claim it. Pray about it for a second. Ask God to help you lay these things down so that you can see his vision for your life. I don't know what it is you're holding on to. I know a lot of times we like to hold on to pain and we like to hold on to guilt and we like to hold on to, to things like that because some, for some reason there's comfort to those things. They're old pains, but, we, but they're comforting to us. It's not what God wants. When you've written that down, when you've prayed about it, I want you to just fold up that paper and put it away and stand and sing with us. I'm going to pray. As I pray... Start thinking about what God would have you write down on that paper. Father God, we all have something that's precious to us. It may not be something of value. It may be something that actually can hurt us, but we hold on to it. I pray, Lord, as we come to this time of response that, as I said earlier, you'll show clearly to each one of us what it is that is keeping us from following your vision for our lives. And I pray that... We can be like Abraham. We can be bold enough to say, I'm going to lay this down today, Lord, and I'm going to do everything I can to walk away from it. I'm going to trust that you have a ram in a thicket that's going to appease and take care of whatever this issue may be. Thank you for being our provider. Jehovah Jireh. Amen.